Now, you probably are not one of those unqualified people, but you probably, maybe the person sitting beside you is one of those unqualified people, or, or maybe, uh, maybe a neighbor or a family member. Yeah. The fact is that God used all those people, and we're going to look at uh, a little of that later on. And he continues to use people with shortcomings today um, in many, many ways. First of all, I want to thank, uh, uh, there's quite a few of you here at this service that um, helped us Friday night with the feeding up at Little River United Methodist Church of, of some people in our community that really needed a meal, that didn't know whether they were going to get a meal. And, and Little River does this every Friday night and it was our turn as as a church in the community we had an opportunity to to volunteer and so many of you came forward I think we had maybe 12 15 of our folks that that went up and our renovators that went up there and uh, helped um, furnish the meal serve the meal um, did that well but what we did so well I thought what I was so proud of you folks about was that we interacted with the people who were there. We took time and talked to them, uh, showed them that we loved them, showed them that God loves them, made a connection with them. Many of you here prayed for those that were, um, um, that had prayer needs. You just prayed right there. Uh, I thank you for that. And and, uh, I can't wait for the next time that we have an opportunity to go to to uh, Little River United Methodist and, and serve again. And uh, it'll, it will come. I think they've got us on the permanent rotation now. <laughs> um, and uh, Karen Elliott, again, will be handling the, the sign-ups and kind of the arrangements for going up there. So thank you, Karen, and thanks to each one of you here for your service Friday night. I, I bet you enjoyed it as much as I did. It, it, was, a, it was a great evening. Nice way to spend a rainy Friday night. And uh, I told Walt earlier at the, at the other service that I certainly don't want to make a habit of adding or saying something about a message that has come before. But as, as we looked at this board uh, that he called your attention to earlier, uh, at the close of the service last week, he asked you to write on a piece of paper... Um, something that you wanted to pray about uh, that was impossible in your life that you wanted God to, to help with, to make happen. Something that you just couldn't see your way clear to that thing happening without him. Um, and I had an opportunity Wednesday to go through and look at all the ones on the board, spent some time there, read each one, prayed about each one as well. But something was a little unsettling. I just didn't know what it was, what, what was missing that, that I felt like we should have, we should have done. And then it came uh, to me about uh, Friday of this week. And that is, you know, maybe, maybe also we ought to ask, God, what is it that you want me to do, that you want me to do that is impossible, that only you can make happen for me? How can I be used? How do you want to use me? So maybe you can think about that this week. You don't have to put it on the board, but just think about it in your, in your quiet time this week. Today we close out a series that we've been working on called Still Doing the Stuff. Um, some of you are delighted that we're closing out the series. Others, others are, may not be quite so delighted, but... We find ourselves at the end of chapter 9 in the book of Matthew, so we have to close out the series. You know, that's just the way, it, just the way it, things happen. In uh, Matthew's gospel, um, chapters 1 through 9, he lays out for us in a very clear and precise way the revelation of who the king is. The Jewish people were expecting a king. The king that they were expecting wasn't exactly what they got. As a matter of fact, it was radically different uh, than, than what they got. 
What they were expecting was an earthly king, a king that would rule, sit on a throne, reign the country, throw out the nasty Romans, uh, bring new uh, life and vitality to the Jewish nation as a whole. That isn't what they got. And Matthew wants to show us that in, even though this king, Jesus, was different than what they expected, this was the king that was talked about and was looked for. So he lays out for us his genealogy, his birth. You know, Matthew is one of the gospel writers that gives us part of the Christmas story that we, that we read at Christmas time. His travel to, to Egypt. Remember, Jesus went to Egypt. He was in Egypt. His forerunner, who was John the Baptist, his baptism, his temptation in the desert in Matthew chapter 4, uh, the beginning of his Galilean ministry, his campaign, if you will, as, as a king, the Sermon on the Mount, which we spent most of the summer here looking at, those wonderful teachings uh, that he had, some of the best teachings ever uh, considered to be around uh, in, in all times throughout history, the collection of the nine miracles in chapters 8 and 9, and then in the first verse of chapter 10, he sends out his 12 disciples to do the work. Now, I promise today will be the last day that, that you hear me talk about this inclusio thing. Uh, inclusio is a grammatical device that... Uh, the writers of that day would use because they didn't have punctuation. There was no such thing as punctuation. So they had to, had to have something that would set apart Scripture. And think of it as a bracket around a portion of Scripture. And Matthew chooses as this uh, portion of Scripture Matthew 4.23 through Matthew 9.35. I'd like for us to take a look at those two verses, if you will. Matthew 4.23 says this, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And then Matthew 9.35 says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Well, it's almost exactly the same words. And what Matthew's done is he's used those as the brackets to set apart some Scripture. He wants us to pay close attention to that Scripture. And what is within Matthew 4.23 and Matthew 9.35? The Sermon on the Mount. The 5th through the 7th chapters of Matthew. And then we get into the 8th and ninth chapters of Matthew. And we have these nine healing miracles that... that aren't just randomly placed there, they, they build on one another. And in Matthew 8 and 9, the focus of Matthew's attention is to show us the authority and the power that Jesus has as the king of this kingdom, this new kingdom. Good news, it says, teaching, preaching the good news of the kingdom. Good news is, is, is the gospel message. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? Why did we need a Messiah? And how can he be mine? And then the good news of the kingdom. And this kingdom unlike, is unlike any other kingdom. It's a kingdom that has no beginning or end really. But the kingdom of God that Jesus was talking to the Jewish people about began when he came the first time, when he was born. Uh, at the first chapter of Matthew, first and second chapter of Matthew, with his birth, he ushered in the kingdom of God. And it goes on forever. But it's not complete until he comes back again. And that time in between is where we live right now. We've talked before about it's already, but not yet. It's here, but not here. It's here and then. It's a different kind of kingdom. Every Christ follower is a citizen of the kingdom. Every one of us. Jesus rules our lives. He supplies our needs. And he guarantees our healing 
That's why those healing miracles were in there. And remember we looked at the, at the Greek word that was used that, that doesn't necessarily mean physical healing. It means rescue. He came to rescue us. He came to save us. That was the healing miracle of Jesus. The rescuing and saving. And this kingdom is the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. There's two main thrusts to the kingdom that we see in, in, those, in the inclusio. One is, of course, the proclamation of God's word, where he preaches God's word. The second is the demonstration of the authority and power of God and his love through Jesus Christ. Proclamation and demonstration. So, you will not hear me mention inclusio again. Praise the Lord, right? Matthew 9.36 says this. When he saw the crowds, remember there were huge crowds that were following him. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Compassion. Compassion. The healings that he was doing established his messianic credentials. It established him as the Messiah, the one to reign over uh, Israel. But it also showed, in a very real way, God's infinite love for the Jewish people, his chosen people. And there was authority and power. Remember, um, uh, the people said, he teaches as one with authority. And after the healings, or in, in the middle of the section on the healings... Uh, it says that they'd never seen authority like this before. Well, what was so different about Jesus' authority and his power? It was a compassionate power. It was a compassionate power. Power that was completely foreign to the pagans, completely foreign to the Jews. The Jews had long since forgotten about the loving kindness of the living God who had chosen them as his people. The people who witnessed Jesus' healing touch and heard his healing words must have been as astonished by his compassion as they were by the healings themselves. They just never seen anything or experienced anything like this. One of one of the people that Nikki Gumbel talks uh, about a couple of times in the Alpha course is a doctor named Paul Brand, B R A N D, and Paul Brand uh, went on a trip to India, and in India he he saw his first lepers, the first people with leprosy, and he was just overcome. Not just with compassion, but also with a desire to learn more and more about how he might be able to help these leprous people in India. So he's devoted his entire life to, to the study of leprosy. He and Philip Yancey together wrote a book that's called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. And I can highly recommend this book to you. I don't know whether any of you have read it or not, but what a powerful book it is. He says this. There's a couple of excerpts here that I pulled out. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the eyes of the blind, the skin of the person with leprosy, and the legs of the cripple. I've sometimes wondered why Jesus so frequently touched the people he healed many of whom must have been unattractive, obviously diseased, unsanitary, smelly. With his power, he easily could have waved a, a magic wand, so to speak, but he chose not to. Jesus' mission was not chiefly a crusade against disease, that isn't why he came. He didn't come to heal people. But rather a ministry to individual people, one by one, to feel his love and warmth and his full identification with them. 
Jesus knew he could not readily demonstrate love to a crowd, for love usually involves touching. He goes on and says, this is a stupefying concept. God's son learning through his experiences on earth. Before taking on a body, God had no personal experience of physical pain or the effect of rubbing against needy people. But God dwelt among us and touched us, and his time spent here allows him to more fully identify with all of our pain and all of our needs. Sympathetic compassion. Sympathetic compassion. Unlike the other religions of the world, Hinduism, the one that I'm most familiar with other than, other than Christianity, Hinduism is perhaps one of the most cruelly neglectful of all the religions. In its caste system, it prohibits anyone from even touching another person from another caste. Not just the Dalit, not just the untouchable, but to even go to the cast below you and, and shake hands or interact with that cast member is a taboo. Its treatment of the sick and dying is sometimes shocking and even barbarous because providing them help is thought to delay the process of karma and reincarnation. Now, you don't want to stand in the way of this natural event taking place where they're taken to the next life, which, you know, may be much better. They could come back as a cow next time. Brahmins, that's the priestly uh, Hindus. Remember Sarita, who was here and talked to us? She, her family is of the Brahmin caste. Brahmins recognize no responsibility at all for the care of the afflicted and downtrodden. We've seen it. If someone is on the side of the street, crippled, uh, hungry, uh, unclothed, you just pass by. That's their lot in life. They did something in their last life that causes them to be that way. So I'm not going to interact with them. I'm not going to, you know, I'm just, I'm just uh, prolonging their agony if I do. Islam, whose history runs red with secular and, and religious bloodshed, is hardly a religion of love and compassion either. Allah is not the God of love. Our Bible says our living God is love. Love is not even one of the characteristics of the God, Allah. The primary motive behind Buddhism benevolence is that that sort of action may lay up for you merits. You know, your, your scales may be tipped in just the right uh, uh, degree so that you're going to be looked on favorably in the next life. Sympathetic compassion is unique. To Christianity because the God of Christianity is uniquely compassionate. There was a great Puritan writer named Thomas Watson, and he said this We may force our God to punish us, but we will never have to force him to love us. And because Scripture, uh, the, the God of our Scriptures and, and Christ himself was a compassionate person, if we take on his name as Christ followers, we are called to be compassionate as well. I'm reading now um, um, the letter that Peter wrote. Um, well, I'll, I'll, all the letters actually, but I was reading through First Peter this week. And in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, I, I saw this that applied to what we're talking about here. Peter says, Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, 
Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. We've been blessed, not so that we would be blessed, but so that we can bless other people. We've been shown compassion and love, not because we deserve compassion and love, but so that we can show compassion and love to others. That's part of being uh, sympathetically compassionate. The other part of that uh, verse that we just read before, before the Peter verse was they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looked out over the crowds and, and his heart had to break because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Their shepherds, if you will, were the scribes and Pharisees. And the scribes and Pharisees offered a religion that added burdens instead of lifting burdens. They were only concerned about the, the self-made traditions in the Talmud. They had forgotten that the, the, the laws that God laid out were fairly simple. I mean, fairly easy. But no, we had to clarify these things. We've been looking at that through the Sermon on the Mount. How, how not only had they tried to clarify, they had uh, misused the laws to, to gain control over the people. The common people were like an object of disdain. There was no compassion at all for the common Jew in that society. It seemed as if, as if everything, all the cards, I guess, were stacked against the, the common people. Matthew 9, 37 through 38 says this. <clears throat> then he, this is Jesus, said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Right here in the middle of the passage, Jesus changes metaphors from, from shepherding to farming or harvesting. And there's no doubt, there could be no doubt, if you look at this scripture and the context that it's in, that what he's talking about is the final judgment. The final judgment as the harvest. A field full of wheat. You've seen those fields. Golden waves of grain, it says in the, in the song. If you've been out west, you've seen them just blow in, in the breeze. How beautiful. Fields full of wheat, ripe, and nobody to harvest it. Nobody. There were people that were eager for God's kingdom... But they didn't know where to look for it, to find it. They were ready and, and waiting for God to act. But who was going to tell them that the kingdom had already come? The action had already begun. Usually, Jesus doesn't tell his disciples or the people he's talking to precisely what to pray for. But in this case, he does. He says, go to the farmer and beg him to send workers to bring in the harvest. There was land that adjoined um, my grandparents' property where I grew up. And, and it, was, it was fields that, that were, uh, I mean, huge fields that were, had different crops in them at different seasons of the year. But I remember um, the, the phrase being used, and you've heard it, it's, a, it's a, a common trite expression, make hay while the sun shines. And what that really means is there is a point in time when the, when the crop is ripe. Let, let's say we're talking about wheat, and, and the wheat is ready. It's, it's as full as it's going to get. It needs to be reaped and put into bales and put into the barn as quickly as you can so it will be um, available for the animals and for uh, flour and other things that we might use. If you go past a certain point, it's spoiled. 
If it rains on the harvest before, you know, when, when it's right at that peak, before it's harvested, it's ruined. It'll rot. It's of no value. He's saying, Jesus is saying, that the, the fields are ripe unto the harvest. They're ready. Ask the farmer to bring help. Bring somebody to help harvest the crop. So here's the big idea for today. On your, on your sheets there you see it. As his followers pray that prayer, the answer comes back oh so quickly. You are yourselves to be the answer to your own prayer. You see, as they prayed that prayer to the Lord of the harvest, they realized, I'm the worker. I'm the one who can do this. I'm the one he's talking about. Maybe that's sometimes why we're afraid to to even pray that prayer. What Jesus had been doing for the last two chapters, chapters 8 and 9, on his own authority, he's now saying to them, you're going to do it at my command. Israel has to hear this message. They have to hear my word. So I would ask, where are the fields ready unto the harvest today for you? Where? At the place where you work? In your home? In this community? Right there on Highway 17? Where is the harvest ready? And then the follow-up question would be, then what should you pray for? What should you pray for? That the workers would come? The workers are here. You are the workers. We have, we, what, is, what is that from World War II? The thing? We, have see, we have seen the enemy and he is us. <laughs> He's us. And you're saying, what? I'm not qualified. Well, the people that we saw on the screen here earlier, Moses, Abraham, Rahab, Joshua, they weren't qualified. God doesn't call qualified people. I mean, just think, if he called a qualified person, the qualified person could do it on his own behalf. What part would God play in that? Yet if he calls somebody that is totally unqualified, like some smelly fisherman from the shores of Galilee, and something wonderful happens, the people will say, it must have been God. I know Peter and John and Andrew. They couldn't have done this. They're not qualified. So don't worry about the qualification. Several years ago... Andy Griggs back here and I had the opportunity to, um, to kind of sponsor a young girl who was in college at the time for a um, mission trip, short-term mission trip to Costa Rica. Her name was Kimmy Boer, B-O-O-H-E-R, Kimmy Boer. And she went down, spent a semester, the last semester she was in school, it was an internship sort of thing, um, working with indigenous people in Costa Rica. She worked specifically with a family. Uh, the, the husband was the pastor, uh, his wife, and a, and a younger son. Uh, the younger son was named Raul. Well, um, sparks flew between um, Kimmy and Raul at some point, and they, they eventually got married. She went back to Costa Rica after she finished school. They got married, and she's been uh, a missionary in uh, Costa Rica since then. And Saturday, I got an update from her as, as, as she 
sins, you know, every couple of months or so. And I just wanted to read you a portion of this. The four sisters that spent Christmas with us have been in discipleship groups with me, and two of them for over a year now. However, getting any one of them to talk, I would usually compare with pulling teeth. They don't look people in the eye. They never speak unless spoken to, and even then it's just a soft word or two. Raul and I uh, quickly realized their reality is one of the toughest, most harsh of circumstances, and the Lord put on our hearts to build a house for them. The living conditions they have are some of the worst we've seen. A roof with small pieces of rotten tin. I think she means rusty tin. She might mean rotten tin. I don't know. And, and the posts were completely deteriorated. Some were even just hanging in the midair, providing no support for the structure of the home at all. <clears throat> the day we approached the mother about this project was less than two weeks ago. And it just happened to be the day after her birthday, the very day that last year we had shown up to her house with a week's supply of food, a fact that we were totally unaware of, the, the coincidence. A few days later, we arrived with shovels and sacks of concrete and sheets of tin ready to rebuild. This, that was this past Monday, a day when we worked side by side with these four sisters and their moms. Us women only lasted a day of hard work, and then the men had to continue on without us because we had been hauling buckets full of sand and stone for the concrete mix from the road down the uneven steps to the home for a solid day. The times when I felt like I needed to take a rest, I looked at the mother and saw the fight in her eyes as she trekked up and down those stairs with buckets that would have weighed, I guess, around 70 pounds. And I understood that this project was something she was fighting for. It was something that was so deep in her heart, and I knew I couldn't let her haul the stuff alone. During this week that we spent with this family at their home, a door was opened to us in their hearts. There was a point when there was such chaos in the house, the, the sand and stone and materials left no room to walk around, lunch was being served, and two neighborhood babies were crying because they needed a place to play. Amidst all the commotion, the 11-year-old grabs my hand and takes out her nail polish and begins to paint my nails. As simple as this may seem, it was a breakthrough. It was a moment in which this girl, who before would never initiate contact, grabbed my hand as though we were best friends and there, were, and there was no one around. She just began to paint away. Thursday, I baked a birthday cake for the mom and reminded her that this project was a birthday present for her from the Lord, whose love for us is more real even than a house is. And this was not the first time in four days when both of our eyes were filled with tears of love and epiphany. One of my favorite parts of the build was our work team. One of the workers was taken in by Raul's parents, but he was raised as a drug mule and forced to transport drugs through the mountains for days and days and days on end. This is the nature of the kingdom of God, redemption and restoration. This boy, once drug mule who suffered atrocities, willing to sacrifice days of profitable work and come to the city a place he had never seen before, to work for the Lord, serving a family in need. He was not just rescued, he was redeemed, restored, and is now a participator in the ministry of reconciliation. Kimmy Boer, who took a chance went to a country that she was not vaguely familiar with. She had had a little Spanish and thought, well, Costa Rica sounds good. And uh, now she's living in Costa Rica, doing God's work, the kingdom work there. All those people, Kimmy Boer, the March of the Unqualified, they could do it, and you can do it too. Each one of you here.
Not equipped, you say? Well, we've got some things around here that we could help to equip you with. One, one of them is the Alpha course. There's these yellow cards today. They're not orange. Uh, yellow cards that um, are for this Alpha course. And this Wednesday just happens to be the last day that you can come on this particular Alpha course. The next one will be in the fall sometime. If you'd like to come, sign up for the Alpha course and, and come and be a part of it, we would love to have you. A place where you can come and learn about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Learn about your purpose maybe in life when you haven't figured out what that might be. Is there, we ask the question, is there more to life than this? Well, I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. A place where you connect, can connect with other folks who need to feel the love and compassion of Jesus through you. Non-threatening. Another possibility is the prayer ministry team training that we have where you can actually pray for people. Oh, I can't pray for anybody out loud. Well, maybe you can. Maybe God would call you to take a step of faith and come and be trained so that you can share in the ministry of prayer with folks. It's so much more than just prayer. We actually don't call it prayer in our team. We call it ministry because it's a holistic approach to the person, not just a prayer. Calling on the power of the Holy Spirit, yes, but not just that. It's a connection again with the person. The habits class that we're just finished, well, the, the registration is finished out, but that will be uh, offered again in the future too. A place where you can come to, to learn to use your Bible, <clears throat> learn to pray, learn to have quiet time, learn what tithing is, learn, learn what fellowship means in a, in a church. Not, not coffee and donuts fellowship, but, but fellowship, the one another's of Scripture, the 55 one another's that are talked about in Scripture where we encourage one another. Small groups, which will be beginning either the end of this month or the first of, of March, we'll be hearing more about those. We're not asking you to get your Bibles, take them out, and beat somebody over the head over here in the drive through at McDonald's with this Bible. That's not what we want. We don't want any pressure. We want no pressure, actually. All that we're asking you to do is to say to them, Come and see. Come and taste. Come and see what the Lord has for you. You don't even have to use the Lord thing in there. Just come and see. Just one time. There's going to be no pressure for you to come back. Just, just come and see. Invite them to Sunday morning service. Invite them to Alpha. Invite them to some event that we have here. I heard about a man named Albert McMakin. 24 years old. He was a farmer. He'd just become a Christian, and he was so charged up about this Christianity thing. He was excited beyond belief. And as most new Christians are, he wanted every one of his friends to experience the same joy that he had. He heard there was an event going on in town, a revival it was called, and, and he wanted to invite all of his friends to this revival. And there was one boy in particular that he wanted to invite, a handsome, good-looking young man, who had lots and lots and lots of girlfriends always hanging around. He was kind of the uh, life of the party, if you will. He wanted this one guy to come more than any of the other friends, and he thought, how am I going to get him to come along with me to the event? And then he thought, I've got this old truck. I'll just ask him to drive the truck with, with all of us in it to the event. And he did. He asked. He said, would, would you... Uh, come along, drive the truck. You don't have to go in or anything. Would you come? He said, sure, I'll drive the truck, but I am not going in there. I don't want any part of that. So, the young guy drove the truck, parked it. There was a tent. I mean, this is a tent meeting sort of revival that, that they were at. 
And he could hear the commotion going on inside, and curiosity got the best part of him. So he sneaked in the back entrance to the tent, and he was absolutely spellbound with what was going on. Could not believe this. And as revivals do, it went on for several more nights. He went every night, and he sneaked in the back of the tent every night. And then on the last night, the speaker said, Look, if you want to give your life to Jesus, come to the front. And this young man that didn't want to come to the event in the first place, that had sneaked in every night, ran to the front of the tent. And since that day, that person has spoken to 210 million people in person about the Christian faith. He's been a friend and a confidant to nine United States presidents. And he's spoken not live, but through television and other media to half the world's population. His name is Billy Graham. Now, we can't all be Billy Grahams, but we can all be Albert McMakins. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see. That's all you have to say. Come and see. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 and verse 5 say this. He called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These 12 Jesus sent out. It was their time to be sent out. I don't know whether you've ever had an experience like that before. I remember September the 11th, 1974. Not the September 11th that most of you think about, but September 11th, 1974. It was the first day that I got to fly an airplane with my instructor. My first ride in an airplane. I remember the day because that morning early, Eastern Airlines Flight 212 from Charleston to Charlotte had crashed short of the runway in a cornfield in Charlotte, North Carolina. And on board that plane were the father and two brothers of Stephen Colbert, the comedian. Didn't know that till years later. I didn't, yeah. Of course, Colbert was probably 10 at the time, so it didn't make any difference. That day was my first experience in an airplane, and, and I can remember flying into the Charlotte airport looking, and you could still see the, the smoldering wreckage down here. I, just kind of one of those images that gets seared in your memory bank. Well, on April the 18th, 1975, uh, I can remember doing some touch-and-go landings with the, with the instructor. And we, you, have to, you have to land and stop the plane. And then you taxi around, take off again, stop. Well, I stopped, and he got out of the plane. He says, I think you're ready to take it. If that's not a sickening feeling, I don't know what is. I mean, I had, I had landed at that airport now probably a hundred times in all kinds of conditions. But when he gets out of the plane and says, it's yours, I mean, I'm still getting a little queasy. <laughs> it's, uh, so I took off and, and landed. And it probably, probably was not my best landing, I could hardly push the rudder pedals because my knees were shaking. My hands were shaking. But we made it. And up until this point, Jesus' disciples have been kind of passengers in the car, if you will. He's been doing all the driving. They were probably astonished, yes, at what they had seen happening. But he's made all the decisions. He's, 
handled all the tricky moments that came up. He's, he steered them through the towns and the villages and Galilee. And if there was any criticism, he's taken the criticism. He's made sure that they didn't get the criticism. And now he's telling them, go off and do it yourself. And I don't think it takes much imagination on our parts to think how they felt when he said, go do it yourselves. <laughs> you want us to do it? Us? All by ourselves? But he knew that they could make a difference for the kingdom. And he gave them the authority to do so. Now maybe you're thinking, I don't know what I could do. I, 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 I just, I don't know, I don't know where I could, where, I, where could I make a difference? Well, it might be in that room back there or one of these two rooms right here that we've heard about this morning with the kids' ministry. You touch a kid's life. I mean, they're, they're so much easier than, than dealing with adults. I mean, they're, they're like sponges. They're going to believe and soak up everything that you say. You won't have these people that have all kinds of theological misconceptions that you're teaching, and, and they want it their way. Uh, kids are easy to work with. They would love for you to come back and be a part of their lives on Sunday mornings. You don't have to be a Kim Boer and go to Costa Rica. And don't be afraid that God's going to call you to darkest Africa. That was always my fear. Oh my gosh, if, if, if I were to do anything other than write a check for missions, he'd have me in Africa. And I don't like kids with little flies crawling all over their mouths, you know? I don't want any part of that. Maybe it's the shepherd's table up at Little River United Methodist Church. That's pretty easy. It's with a bunch of people here that, that we know, and, and it's a fun time for, fun time was had by all. Maybe it's Alpha for the homeless or for the senior citizens at one of the nursing homes or for youth Alpha. You can easily get plugged into one of those, and you don't have to carry the whole load yourself. Too old, you say? I can't, I can't think about doing those things at my age. Carolyn Holiday, how old were you on your, when you first went to Haiti? 60. 60. Hmm. Well, 60 years old. And how many times have you been? 26 times. Wow. She didn't start till she was 60. It's kind of like Grandma Moses not starting to paint until she was 99 or something, you know? And loves every trip. They're taking a trip the end of March, leaving the 30th or 1st of April or something like that. And, and I've been asked to uh, commission the team that's going to Haiti this time and look forward to that. So you can meet the people, some of whom are here in our church and some that aren't. They'll be doing another trip into the summer, into the fall. Maybe that's where you should go. Talk to Carolyn. Talk to the one guy over here in a coat and tie. Um, Chris or his wife in front of him. She didn't want to sit with him because he was wearing a coat and tie. <laughs> uh, talk to them. They'd, they'd love to tell you how you could get hooked up for a short, I mean, I think they may go a week or seven or eight days or something like that. It's not a long trip. Come and see. Come and see what missions is like. You can make a difference. You can make a difference. One guy that I know has, has made a tremendous difference in the world is a fellow named Oscar Schindler. You ever heard of him? Schindler's List, the, the movie. Uh, when we go to Israel, I love to go visit the, his grave it's actually there above ground, the tomb of Oscar Schindler. He's revered by the Jewish people because he saved 1,100 lives. He was a businessman 
who was kind of in cahoots with the Nazis and um, thought, hmm, I can get some free labor from the labor camp here. I, could get, I wouldn't have to pay wages to these people. They could work for me. And I could still make my products and make a fortune. He started that way, and then he realized these were people. These were people. I could make a difference in their lives. And he found that he could spend a little bit of money and essentially buy one of the slaves out of slavery. Watch this movie clip. The man who saves one life will save the world eventually. (laughs) One life. Can you think of one person that you could show God's love and compassion to? I'm not talking about taking the Bible, beating them over the head with it, memorizing this whole thing and spewing it out in their face. I'm talking about showing God's love and compassion in a very simple way. One person can make all the difference. I had for years... Um, practiced a little, a little thing. I don't even know what, what I would call, <laughs> what I would call it. But uh, uh, with white people in restaurants, and it was. Uh, I'm going to challenge you this week to do it. We 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 all have eaten in a restaurant. We probably will all eat in some sort of restaurant this week for something. And I'm going to ask you to. Try this simple little exercise, and I'd love to hear how it worked because I know it's going to work. It, it works every time that I try. When the wait person comes to your table, I'm going to say waiter. I know that's not PC, but I'm going to say waiter because it's hard for me to say wait person. And Sorry, ladies. Uh, when the waiter comes to your table, be sure that you know their name. They normally say, hi, my name's Stephen. Welcome to Outback. I'm happy to serve you. Uh, Well, be sure you call Stephen by his name the rest of the evening. Every time he comes, Stephen, how are you? Uh, Stephen, could I have a little more tea or water or whatever? Each time that Stephen comes back to me, and, and he will on average come back five or six times during the meal for different things, ask another question. Are you from around here? Did you grow up here? Where's your family from? Are you in school? Uh, What are you studying? Questions like that. You're just building a quick relationship with that person. And then when he brings the check out at the end of the meal, that's when, that's when when it gets real good. He lays the check down and you've got a card or some cash that you're going to give to him. And you know he has to come back, either for you to sign the card or bring you cash back. And I would say, Stephen, how can I pray for you? Not what would you like for me to pray, da-da-da-da. How can I pray for you? And then just stand back and watch what happens. Usually, usually the person gives you their whole life story, right? In one sentence, maybe. I was at breakfast this week with Walt and said that to the waitress. and Waitress now, waitress. And uh, she said, my husband, Chris, he's been without a job since last October. Would you please pray that he can find a job? He's he's landscaper and... Uh, I forgot what the other what the other function is, but he's he's uh, we're really we're getting desperate. It's been okay, but we're getting to the point that we just can't make it. Would you please pray for him? I saw her uh, Friday at the same restaurant and asked about Chris, and it was like, I mean, I've seen her 
many, many times, but it was like, wow, he really cares, you know? Uh, Randy and I had lunch one day this week, and, and our waiter was named Ricky, and, and I said at the end, Ricky, how can I pray for you? He said, uh, well, after the shock came off of his face, I mean, it was like, uh, he said, well, we've had a death in the family, and I'm headed to Lumberton Friday. You could pray for my family. And you could also pray uh, for next Friday, this coming week, because um, several years ago, 10 years ago or so, my sister was murdered, and the guy that murdered her has been in jail, and his lawyer has come up with some cockamamie evidence that he wants to, he wants to try to put forward to get her out. You could pray for us and for the, for the trial. Yeah. Well, I didn't pray. I, I don't pray right then. I just let them know that I'm going to pray for them. So if you're, if you're scared about, oh, gosh, will I have to pray in front of the other people at the restaurant? I'm not saying to do that. Now, once in a while, they will ask you to. My, my weirdest situation was on an airplane from Chicago back to Charlotte, I think it was. The... the flight attendant, was uh, going up and down the aisles in this half-full plane, you know, doing drinks and, you know, whatever they do when you're in flight. And every time she would go by, I'd ask another question, you know, find out a little bit more about her. And her daughter was in high school and having some difficulties, yada, yada, yada. And um, this point came, and I said, uh, how could I pray for you? I had not gotten the words out of my mouth until she was on her knees in the aisle in the middle of this plane. Now, she was expecting us to pray for her, so we prayed right there. But generally, you don't, you don't do that. I'm asking you, I'm challenging you to try it. I've never, ever, 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 ever had anybody say, oh, no, 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 don't pray for me. I, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in prayer. Da, da, da. They are so happy for you to pray for them. And I want to hear those stories. I want to hear what's happening. I want to hear the experiences you had. You're going to be absolutely amazed at what you will see. By the way, Stephen told me to be sure to mention that uh, in restaurant circles, Sunday is called Evil Sunday because the church people come. Don't laugh. The church people come. And the church people don't tip. And the church people are mean and nasty just the very idea that you're going to show compassion to these folks will just knock, knock them over. You could knock them over with a, with a feather. Try it this week. Let me know next week. By the way, next week's message is a, a special one. It will be a good one for you to say, come and see. Come and see. I promise they have never heard a message like next week. You haven't either. The compassion of Jesus. There's nothing like the compassion he showed on the cross. And on the night before he was betrayed, he was in the upper room with some friends having the Passover meal. We looked at that in our communion training this past week and how it all comes together having the Passover meal. And he took bread and he said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup after dinner, pouring the wine into it, said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as you eat this bread and, and drink this wine, you remember me until I come. When he comes again, the kingdom is complete. The kingdom is complete. Wow. The compassion and love that he showed for us that afternoon on the cross, we could never repay. You know what would what I think would make him 
delight would be that one person that you could show his love and compassion to this week. One person can change the course of eternity. Servers, would you come? At renovation, of course, we use wine. If you would prefer not to use wine as your element, we have juice at either attendance station. They'll be happy to instruct you in that. Take just a moment before you come and think about think about who it is that you might talk to this week. We will have ministry team members on either side to pray with you, to encourage you, to walk through whatever sort of uh, issue you might be going through right now. They would love to do that. Take a moment and come to the table that he's invited us all to.